Good morning, Christchurch. My name's Sai. I'm one of the leaders here. What turbulent times we live in. A global pandemic, mass protests against racism, and then some people using these protests as a way to, uh, as an excuse for mindless violence, vandalism, and robbery. There are plagues of locusts in India and plagues of locusts in East Africa, which is going to affect hundreds of thousands of people's lives. The two most populous nations in the world, India and China, up until recently, were, uh, there was an escalation of military buildup along their border. That's two-fifths of the world's population nearly going to war. Thankfully, in the last week, that's kind of de-escalated a bit. There's a desperate plight of the people in Venezuela who, by rights of their resources, should be one of the richest nations in the world. And then there's a very real threat of war between Israel and Hezbollah as things on the ground in Syria are changing. Make no mistakes, my friends. There are wars and rumours of wars. There is plagues and pestilence hitting the earth. There is blatant and celebrated lawlessness around the world. The world is facing growing tribulation. Yet despite all this, the kingdom of God is growing around the world, even though it is violently opposed, verbally, financially, ideologically, and of course, physically as well. Christians are still the most victimized and persecuted people in the world, whether it be through Netflix and Hollywood producing blasphemous series and films that they would never dare do against Islam or Hinduism, whether it be our media drip-feeding anti-Christian values to the masses, and, of course, whether it be the physical outright persecution of believers, particularly in the 1040 window, where they are killed for their faith. You know, according to Open Doors, it is estimated that 11 people die every day only because they chose to follow Jesus. That's 4,000 people, 4,000 Christians murdered every year for their faith. And yet our world is silent on this issue. Yet in spite of that persecution, more people are hearing the good news about Jesus now than they ever have before. And more people are surrendering their lives to Jesus than has ever happened in the past. You know, we shouldn't be surprised. Jesus promised us that there will be wars and rumors of wars. There'll be plagues, there'll be pestilence, there'll be troubles on earth. There'll be persecution and suffering for following him. But as we, as a church, hold on to Christ, as we hold on to the, and hold out the message of hope, we will overcome the world as Jesus himself overcame the world. John 16 verse 33 tells us, we're told that we overcome by the blood of the Lamb, that's Jesus, and the word of our testimonies, loving not our lives so much as to shrink back 
from death. And even if we do die as Christians in Christ, we're told by Jesus that we will yet live. My friends, we are not living for here and now. This is just a nanosecond in time compared to eternity. And yet wonderfully, what we do in faith and obedience to Jesus in this nanosecond in time will ripple throughout eternity. The Almighty God, in his sovereignty, is wanting to involve you in his eternal plans. What a privilege. Jesus is in control. He is the one we are to trust, to look to, to live for in this turbulent world that we find ourselves. In reality, he is the only one who can fix the problems of this world, of social justice. It, you know, he's the only one that can actually deal with that. You know, social justice is great. It's a great cause to, to fight for. And yet, divorced from the gospel, it will not cause long-lasting change. Only Jesus can truly change someone's heart. Only Jesus can enable us, each one of us, to deal with the sinful nature within, which is within all of us, not just a few, every one of us. And only Jesus will bring true justice when he returns. He can be trusted. He can be taken at his word. And he will never let you down. Like the second century church father, Polycarp, you'll be able to say, 86 years have I served my Lord, and he has done me no wrong. You may not live 86 years, but however long you serve Jesus, you'll be able to say, he has done me no wrong. You see, throughout the Bible, God is described as a faithful God. When they translate the, the word love from the Hebrew, in the ESV, they always put the word steadfast before it. Because it brings out a nuance that is there in the original language. That God's love is steadfast. It's faithful. It's unwavering. It's loyal towards his people. And today, as we continue in this series on David as a, having a heart after God, we will see God's covenant, his agreement that he won't go back on, that he makes with King David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. So I'll read this passage to you, 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, Oh, hello Nathan. There's Nathan. See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night when Nathan was sleeping, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about 
in a tent for my dwelling, in a place where I have moved with all the people of Israel. Did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built for me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pastures, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of earth. I will appoint a place for my people Israel and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and not be disturbed anymore. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, and with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And in accordance with all the words and in accordance with all the vision, Nathan spoke to David. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, I am not worthy of what you have already done for me, sovereign Lord, nor is my family. Yet now you are doing even more sovereign, Lord. You have made years promised about my descendants in the years to come, and you let a man see this, sovereign Lord. What more can I say? You, you know me, your servant. It was you will a purpose to do this. You have done all these great things in order to teach me how great you are, Sovereign Lord. There is none like you. We have always known that you are alone our God. There is no other nation on the earth like Israel, Israel whom you rescued from slavery to make them your own people, the great and wonderful things you did for them have spread your fame throughout the world. You drove out other nations and their gods as you, your people advanced the people whom you set free from Egypt to be your own. You have made Israel your own people forever and you, Lord, have become their God. And now, Lord, you fulfil for all time the promise you have made about me and 
my descendants and do what you said you great you great and people will forever say the lord almighty is god over israel and you might you almighty lord god of israel and have courage to pray this prayer to you because you have revealed it to me your servant and have told me that you will make my descendants king and now sovereign lord you have you are god you always keep your promises and you have made a wonderful promise to me i ask to bless my descendants so that you will continue your favor your sovereign lord have promised this and your blessings will the rest of my descendants forever now this passage is described by theologians as the high point in David's life. And from this, I want to look at firstly the house of God and the house of David, and that wordplay there, and then secondly, the redeeming plan of God. But before we do that, as we're all in this strange time of lockdown, which has many low points, I thought it would be good for you to hear from some of our folk about some of their high points that have come about from this time in lockdown. So over to them. So the good thing about lockdown for me is I've been much more relaxed. I've had more time for other people and for myself. And I'm not constantly watching the time to see what time it is. Yeah, um, I've had eight weeks off uh, in the evening, so uh, it's been uh, nice not to rush around. And I've been trying one of these, and Brenda's let me, haven't you? Kind of. (laughs) (laughs) Although we've been restricted in many ways, we have been able to explore many new footpaths around Hailsham, especially off the Cuckoo Trail. And uh, we've seen lots of lovely things like bluebell woods and wildflower verges and peaceful landscapes and all the glory of God's kingdom. So we've really benefited in that way. Right, good morning everyone. Um, Sai has asked me to give two highlights that have occurred to me during this period of lockdown. And the two really are, I suppose, are doing um, exercises with my granddaughter. We used to go to the gym a couple of times a week before the lockdown. Now we actually do the exercises on FaceTime and I'm having uh, to use tins of uh, soup in order to do the exercises and that's great fun. She's quite a strong disciplinarian so I have to make sure I do the exercises properly. And the second great thing has been, as many of you know, we had a men's Bible study on a Friday and that had to stop. But now with Zoom, we've been able to restart those Bible studies. And we've had some really great times together. So uh, they're highlights. I trust that you've had some highlights as well during this low period in many of our lives. Like most families, the lockdown has meant that we've been unable to celebrate family of birthdays and special days like Easter and Mothering Sunday. In particular, we were unable to celebrate Joe's 50th birthday in March. However, as the lockdown eased and we were able to meet in small family groups, we met together at the beginning of June for Paul's birthday. We welcomed most of the family who joined us in the garden on three, in three separate groups at different times during the day. It was a happy event and one to remember. 
Good morning, everyone. Um, I think one good thing about lockdown for me has been working from home. Uh, been in the caravan on the driveway for two or three days a week, which has been really useful and has meant that I can go to work wearing shorts and T-shirt, which has been very novel for me. One bad thing about lockdown. Well, after careful consideration, I would have to say it's got to be lockdown hair. You see, my fringe has gone absolutely haywire. In fact, it's completely gone. And I don't think it will ever come back. So lockdown has a lot to answer for. So the house of God and the house of David. So this chapter represents the high point in King David's turbulent life. David is king. He has rest from his enemies. He no longer has to hide in a cave, but he's got a lovely house of cedar. Only the super rich could afford a house like that. It was nothing compared to some of the palaces of his time, but it still was a lovely place to stay. And yet David's thoughts now move to thanking the God who had given him all this. And he's not just looking to build God a house of cedar. He's looking to make it a special place with gold and silver and precious stones as well as cedar and, uh, and normal stones as well. Mary Evans, in her book, says the chapter centers on a wordplay that unusually works in English just as well as it does in the Hebrew. David is not to build a house that is a building for God. But God will build a house that is a dynasty for David. Samura, in his book on this, he says, David wants to build a, house, a physical house for the Lord, but the Lord is concerned with David's house, his dynasty. God is pleased with David's heart to build a house. We're told in 2 Chronicles 6, Solomon says that the Lord said about it that what David desired to do was good. Yet, you may have picked up as I was reading that passage that there is a gentle correction, a gentle rebuke that God gives David, that he is God over the nations, he is God over history. He doesn't need David to build him a house. In fact, because he's God over everything, he's going to build up David's house, David's family line forever because he's in control of all things. A lesson actually that David certainly learned and passed on to Solomon at least because when Solomon dedicates a magnificent temple building that they'd spent seven years building and making it look beautiful, he prays this when he dedicates the temple. But will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house, that word again, house, that I have built. God promises succession for David's house, his family line, which was not the case for any of his predecessors, not Saul, not even righteous Samuel before Saul, or Eli before that. Whilst David himself cannot build a house for God, God will build the house of David and then use the house of David to build the house of God. And before we go on to look at God's redemption plan, which is the house of David, God using the house of David to build the house of God, I don't want us to miss the fact 
that David wanted to build God a house. And, and despite such wonderful promises that he was given, actually the answer from God was no. You can't do it, David. The prophet Nathan says, go for it. It's a great idea. What a good thing. Surely God will want it. And then in the night, the word from the Lord is, no, it's not for you, David. My friends, as believers, what do you do when God says no to you? It's a good thing you want to do. It's something for God. It's God's work. It needs to be done. Someone's got to do it. You want to do it. But God says, no, it's not for you. It's for somebody else. Do you get jealous of the person he gets to do it? Do you moan, oh, I could do that better? Or are you like David, who, unlike Saul, humbled himself and submitted to the Lord's will and did not rebel against God? But he also didn't wash his hands of the responsibility of it either, of the cost of it. He could have said, okay, right, well, I'll leave it to my son then. But he made preparations for the son. He gave of his own money. It cost David dearly. He put lots of his own money aside so that Solomon could use it to build this house and that he could bless a future generation with the purposes of God. Even though he himself knew that he would never see it in his lifetime. Alan Redpath, in his book, says, If you cannot build, you can gather materials. If you cannot go, you can send somebody else. If God has said no to you, you can make it possible for someone else to fill that place that you had set your heart on. My friends... Let's be like King David and set our heart on building the kingdom of God and playing our part, whatever that looks like. In truth, do you know, it rarely works out the way that you have planned or initially hoped for. But as you trust God and give yourself to his plan and play your part in his purposes, he will build his kingdom for you and actually it will ultimately, ultimately be more fulfilling for you. Notice how David did not get distracted as well in investing in his own house. He wanted to build the house of God. My friends, too many Christians get distracted with building and investing their time and money in their home, both physically and metaphorically, I'm speaking about here. Not realizing, like David, that God has given you all that you have and he has put you where you are so that you can play your part in extending his kingdom in your time here on earth. Remember, Jesus makes it clear, where your treasure goes, there your heart will go also. Where is your treasure going at the moment? You see, David could have thought, well, I've done my bit. I've, I've fought the battles. I've firmly established Israel now. It's all safe and secure because God's used me to do that. He, he was a powerful king 
And he could have thought, well, I need a powerful palace. I'm a powerful king. And yet he didn't get distracted by that, unlike, sadly, his son Solomon did. And unlike, sadly, so many Christians get distracted over it. David gave generously to the work of God, leaving a large legacy in his will to go towards the work of God after his death so that he could bless and have a part in blessing future generations. I tell you, heaven, in heaven, David will receive his reward from God for all that he did in faith. And don't you want that to be true of you? I know I want that to be true of me, my friends. It's time to get serious with God and help enable the gospel to go throughout the earth, right to the ends of the earth. Because when the gospel's gone to the ends of the earth, then Christ can return and usher in the perfect world to come. If you want social justice, if you want peace, if you want an end to suffering and wrongdoing, then enabling the gospel to go to the ends of the earth is the primary solution to all those things. So let's, let's look at that in, in God's redeeming plan. My last point, God's redeeming plan for humanity is actually the master plan. It's the meta-narrative of history. You see, you have to understand that King David's life found its significance in the fact that David was willing to play his part in serving the people of God and serving the purpose of God in his time. Samura says this, he says, The Lord reveals here, his etern- in this chapter, his eternal plan of salvation that is to be realized through the agency of David's dynasty, through David's family line. David is not to build the house of God, but God will build the house of David and use the house of David to build the house of God. In verses 12 to 15 that we read a moment ago, obviously initially that applies to Solomon who builds a physical temple and also to the subsequent kings of Israel who God disciplines them when they do things wrong. And their reign, everyone after David's reign, is compared to how devoted they were in comparison to David. He's the benchmark that they all get compared to by God. But obviously, in that prophecy as well, it looks forward to Jesus Christ coming, who is the perfect king, whose rule will know no end, and who establishes the true temple of God, not built with materials, but with people joined together through the Spirit of Christ. David's life finds eternal significance by how his life is linked with Jesus Christ. And my friends, your life finds eternal significance by how your life is linked with Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Joyce Baldwin says this in her her book, this chapter was to become the source of messianic hope as it developed in the message of the prophets and the Psalms. This promise of God to David, which became known as the Davidic covenant, 
which is uh, the covenant word actually isn't used in the passage that we read. But later in Scripture, in uh, Psalms 89 and Psalms 132 and 2 Samuel 23, as people look back, they refer to this period as when God spoke as uh, God's covenant with David. And uh, helpfully here, Joyce explains to us what it means by covenant. She says this, A covenant confirms that it was regarded as an enduring, unconditional promise sworn by divine oath. So it depends on God, not human ability. So it is guaranteed, it's, it's, it's definite, it will happen. And actually, it's one of the five great covenants that you find in the Bible. The first one that you see is the, is the covenant with Noah, and therefore the whole human race. This can be found in Genesis 8 and 9, where basically God promises he's never going to destroy the whole earth again because of the actions of mankind. A little later, you then get the covenant with Abraham and therefore all of God's chosen people, which is summed up in the Bible's opening introduction to Abraham in Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3, but you can also, it also gets developed in Genesis 15, right the way through to about chapter 18 there as well. And basically, he's going to make Abraham into a great nation. He's going to give them the promised land. He'll bless those who bless Abraham. He'll curse those who curse Abraham and his descendants. And through them, the whole world will be able to be blessed. So God's not going to destroy the earth anymore, but through Abraham, he's going to find a way to bless. Then you get the covenant with with Moses at Mount Sinai, found in Exodus 19 to 23. And whilst there are bits for God's people in there for all time that we can learn from, actually primarily it's for the old covenant people of Israel. And, uh, and for how they are to live in the promised land, which is conditional upon their obedience to this covenant. They're supposed to be like a kingdom of priests to the world uh, around them, pointing people to God. And of course, through the people of Israel, you get King David, and then you get the, the, the Davidic covenant or the covenant with David that we've been looking at today in 2 Samuel chapter 7 or 1 Chronicles chapter 17, that basically through his family line, God is going to establish his eternal kingdom, which finally comes a thousand years later through Jesus Christ, and you get the new covenant. Jesus, in the new covenant, he offers forgiveness for the things that we have done wrong to all who surrender to him and put their faith and their trust in him. It doesn't matter anymore whether you're a Jew or Gentile, whether you're a slave or free, whether you're male or female, black or white or anything else. All can come to God through Christ and only through Christ. And when you do come to God through Christ and surrender yourself to Jesus, Jesus sends his Holy Spirit to live inside of you. You become a place where God dwells, a temple of his 
Spirit joined together with the other people of God, you become the house of God. More than this, the Apostle Paul tells us that that spirit that lives inside of us when we put our faith in Jesus is the deposit guaranteeing our future inheritance in the age to come when Christ returns. My friends, it's great news being part of the new covenant. Going back to the passage, finally, notice in verses 19 to 21 in David's prayer, David rejoices in the grace of God towards him. And we share that privilege. We have, we have, we have the sheer privilege of being able to align our lives with the will of God and be used by him to establish his eternal purposes here on earth. Obviously, unlike David, we're not going to be uh, used to be part of the ancestry of Christ. But we can be used to hasten the return of Jesus Christ, 2 Peter 3 tells us. And my friends, there's no greater privilege than belonging to Jesus and being found in Christ and bearing the name a Christian. Give your life to playing your part in extending God's kingdom, in playing your part in God's plan of redemption, his plan of salvation here on earth. Even though it will cost you in this age, my friends, God will reward you partly in this age, but in the age to come, he will reward you in a way that is more than you could ever ask or imagine for. For we serve, as David said in his prayer, a God whose words are true and his promises are good towards his servants who live for him. Through faith in Jesus, the one who fulfills the promise to King David that we've looked at today, we have entered into the new covenant where we get adopted into God's family regardless of our background and have the hope that goes on for all eternity in a renewed and perfected world. If you're watching this morning and you don't know Jesus and you would like to, then could I encourage you to pray this prayer of surrender to him along with me? Just pray this. Heavenly Father, thank you that you love me enough to send Jesus to die on the cross for the things that I've done wrong. Please forgive me of all that I have done, said, and thought that offend you. And through the power of your Spirit, help me live the rest of my life for you, because I surrender my life to you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well done if you prayed that at home. I encourage you, if you have, then to contact the office or let somebody who you know goes to our church uh, know that you, you've done that. It would be great to follow you up and, and speak to you uh, about that. But, my friends, be blessed. Have a great week and play your part in serving God and extending his kingdom 
here on earth. Play your part in God's redeeming plan because it is the meta-narrative of history. It's the story that we, our lives, should get caught up in. And when Christ returns, he will reward you for all that you have done in faith. Be blessed. Have a great week. Hopefully see you soon.